I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. Change gears on Sunday morning and go to something different, but I can't get out of this. I am... Um, I know sometimes when you get into the book of Revelation, into principles of prophecy, it gets somewhat complex. Uh, But I think that we are able to understand it, or we should be able to understand it. And I know I may not be the best teacher in the whole world, but I, I also don't think that we have to dumb anything down for God's people. I believe God can help us to have an understanding. And uh, I don't think that has to be done. So we're going to read. We're going to talk about diluting the doctrine, diluting or refusing. Let me let me put that correctly. Refusing to dilute the doctrine, refusing. Jude three and four, beloved. When I give all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to look at the term lasciviousness. Anybody want to give me the definition of lasciviousness? What is lasciviousness? Lust, yeah, yeah. It's and you know, looking at that in that way, uh, it's it's kind of it's an interesting. It brings a different uh, uh, kind of bent to this this scripture. For there are certain men crept in unaware who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God, turning the grace of God into something lustful. But hasn't that happened? See, it has happened. So it's been something. Uh, sexually, sexually perverted is, is really a, a good way of putting it. And denying, again, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. First Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. When you sear something, you stop the flow. Uh, always uh, the best way for me to understand that personally is I... I, when I was 16, I was, uh, we were, I was learning from a blacksmith how to shoe horses. And, and a horse that was, was uh, foundered on, on grain or foundered on water, his hoofs would grow out. It would be a horrible-looking thing. But the blood would flow down into this, this almost looked like a shoe, a horse's hoof. It would twist out that much. And you had to cut that off. And when you cut that off, nerves had grown down in there and blood supply. And it would actually blood. You'd cut into that and it blood would spurt. And you had to take a hot iron and sear that to stop the blood from flowing. And you had to continue to work to get a horse where it could even walk. And that was because people, uh, <laughs> you could really put that in there, people fed them too much grain. Uh, I think sometimes that happens in the, in the church as well. I think we get so fed that we forget that there's other people out there that need as much as we do. We get spiritually fat. Spiritually fat. Second Timothy three one through seven. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. 
For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lust, ever learning and ever able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Proverbs twenty two twenty eight says, Remove not the ancient landmarks which thy fathers have set. Proverbs twenty three twenty three says, By the truth by the truth sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. I'm going to be teaching on those two Proverbs here shortly on Wednesdays. You may be seated. Scientists say that there have been hundreds of thousands of animals that have become extinct over the years. And today there are, the best way of putting it is Herculean efforts have been made to stop some of this from happening. Uh, many of you remember uh, this. Uh, well, some of us <laughs> remember this, not all of us. In 1973, that they stopped the building of, of the Teleco Dam in the Little Tennessee River because environmentalists sought to protect a fish called the snail darter. And uh, it was, a, you know, it was, if they had built this dam, there was a potential here for extinction. And it was, it was such a, a big deal that this thing went all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, the dam was ultimately built, but not without months of delays, and millions of dollars was spent in legal battles over a little tiny fish that you probably wouldn't even pay attention to if you saw it. 1988, three gray whales were discovered locked into uh, all locked in ice in Point Barrow, Alaska. Now, realizing the whole uh, that the, the whales rather could die, efforts to free the whales became an international project, and there was millions of dollars that was spent on ice-breaking ships, on helicopters, on pumps everything that they were doing and all of a sudden these whales just disappeared and nobody knows to this day whether all that money that was spent had a thing to do with those whales getting free or not and it could have been at night that some good old Eskimos come in there and killed them and took them out of there and made blubber out of them you know it could have been <sighs> I'm not a real good you know I believe in conservation I really do hunters are one of the great, greatest conservationists that there is I'm not going to let you go out and kill all the deer because I enjoy hunting them. You know, so conservation, you know, you got hunters are some of your, and they spend the money for this kind of thing. So it's amazing, and you get to looking at it, how environmentalists fight to protect creatures that's near extinction. Now, now you think about this and how that somebody could do this in a, in, in a carnal sense, that they can, they can spend all this money and do all of this uh, to do it because they know that once something is lost, it may be many years, and in case of extinction, it may never, ever, you're never going to get it back. But in you know, some cases, you know, there, there's things that get so low, it takes a lot of years for it to get back. Now, you, you, with that in mind, you ought to think about how we should preserve truth. We need to preserve truth like, it, it, and really it is, you know, we're always, we're always, one, one person said this, we're always one generation away from extinction. One generation. Everybody that you know in 100 years is going to be dead. We're one generation from extinction. So if we do not protect the truth, 
where the scripture says to buy the truth and sell it not. If we do not protect it, then what we have here can become extinct. Now, I, I, you know, I know, and I, in, in a part of my heart, believe this that God will always have a church because I realize that through the dark ages of the uh, Catholic, the Catholicism, and all the uh, all the things that went on, that I believe there was a truth preaching truth a church somewhere. But you realize if you begin to look around us, we can see how we see a lot of people that are are leaving truth, are leaving it completely. Not to, and I'm not just talking about holiness standards. I'm talking about letting down in areas like Jesus' name baptism, the necessity of the Holy Ghost, speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. I, I'm talking about these kind of things. We're always one generation away. Now, the departure. The departure of some individuals from apostolic doctrine was anticipated uh, before the completion of the New Testament. Actually, Paul, he... He he knew this was going to happen. He uh, he he realized that it was was going to be going to happen. He anticipated it, and and this happened. For example, in looking at this, Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, "Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils." First Timothy four one. I read it to you earlier. The danger of of such a departure can be seen in Paul's words. Now. I'm going to read this to you, and I want to, I'm going to throw this particular point out to you as well. For those of you that have a hard time finding Scripture that will help you to understand that uh, there's no such thing as eternal security, I want you to look at this Scripture. I want you to listen to this Scripture. And, and I, this, tell me what you think concerning this and how this would also pertain to uh, the uh, knowledge that there is no such thing as eternal security. And he says this, he said, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Now he puts emphasis on doctrine, continue in them, for in doing so thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. If there was such a thing as eternal security, how in the world or why in the world would you want to take heed unto yourself and the doctrine? That has to mean that there's a possibility that you will be lost and people that hear you will be lost because you departed from doctrine. We cannot depart from doctrine. And if you don't understand doctrine, let me tell you our doctrine. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance, and we're to live a godly, holy life. That is our doctrine. That's our doctrine. Now, by implication, to depart from faith, from true doctrine, endangers one's salvation and the salvation of those that... Father, can you imagine? You know, I've always believed that, that you can get truth into the people so deeply that even if a preacher goes bad, that those people are going to, to, to maintain and know what the righteousness is and how to live for God. They're going to know that. But I also know that if a man of God begins to fail and begins to subtly in, in, you know, inject, if you would, something other than truth and say, well, maybe this really doesn't matter or maybe that really doesn't matter. And before long, and this is, this is what's been happening for 2,000, well, it's been longer than that, uh, for 6,000 years, this has been happening, how the devil has injected a little bit here and a little bit there. And if the devil gets a hold of a preacher and he begins to do the same thing, then not only, maybe you've got it deep in your heart, but it can make you question. And when you begin to question... You're on your way out. 
Now you hear me. You're on your way out. Because you will, the devil will, get, will take an inroad there. He will get a foothold in you and he'll make you question everything that ever happens. And you'll be so full of doubt you might continue to come to church, but you're going to sit back on the pew and question everything that is said from the platform. And if you do that, my friend, that means you have no faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because they that come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Aren't you glad you know the truth? Aren't you glad you've been set free? Aren't you glad you know that truth, that it's embedded in your heart and you're never going to let down? Now, we're going to look at some specifics here on this Scripture. Because remember what I said, we're always talking about context. What is in there? What's he talking about? And specifically, specifically, Paul was warning has to, or his warning in this particular case, has to do with the prohibition of marriage and enforcement of dietary codes and the embracing of profane and old wives' tables and first uh, fables' tables. Old wives' fables. First Timothy 4, 3 through 7. Uh, these, cons- these concerns may at first seem far removed from us. Now, you, you look at this. You're talking about the prohibition of marriage, um, enforcement of dietary codes, old wives' fables. And you think, well, that's far removed from 20th century or 20, you know, 21st century Pentecostalism. But one challenge to a biblical lifestyle during that era, or the 20th century, was the social purity doctrine. Now, this happened 1930s, 40s, going up into the 50s in Pentecostalism. It's a social purity doctrine. Anybody have any idea what I'm talking about? Social purity doctrine. Go ahead. That goes deeper than that. Okay, now you're getting there. That's 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 it. It was abstinence from sex in marriage. That was the social purity. Now, now, uh, the idea that married couples should abstain from sexual relations. In 1924, Andrew Urshan devoted an entire article in a monthly publication called The Witness of God to this problem. Um, and he, he titled it this. He said, The Bible Truth versus Social Purity Doctrine. Uh, also, there, there was, uh, you know, you talk about that during G.T. Haywood's time. He wrote, in fact, I've got the uh, booklet that he wrote concerning... Uh, if you were in the church, you came in the church, let's say, uh, I, 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 I didn't, my wife is my first wife, only wife, only wife I'll ever have, I promise you. But let's say that I came into the church and I had uh, I'd been married, like I said, I got married when I was 16 or 17 and divorced a year later. Well, according to that doctrine, if I got into the church for her sake and for my sake, I had to go remarry that woman. That's, they taught this. GT, I got a booklet concerning that, and he used a ton of Scripture to, to show how, especially one, you're a new creature in Christ, old things are passed away, behold, all things become new. But that was part of some of the things that they used to have, and that would have been a part of the social purity doctrine as well. So, yes, you know, there, some of the things that were going on, and in fact, uh, a biography of her husband, Clyde Haney, everybody knows who the Haneys are. It was titled, The Man of the Hills Served in the Valley. And Olive Haney, his wife, described the first year of their marriage 
as a time of inexpressible fear as the attempt to live by the strictures of abstinence. So in her time, she describes that in a book of how terrible that really was. Some Pentecostals also prohibit the eating of pork along with other dietary restrictions. Actually, that stuff still goes on somewhat today, doesn't it? Uh, surprisingly, I have seen met a few preachers. Who, they didn't put you in hell for it, but you know they, they questioned, you know, why do you eat pork? Well, because I like bacon. That's why I eat pork. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I like bacon. And Joel bacon. Anybody really like Joel bacon? Oh, now, isn't that, oh, man, good Joel bacon. Nothing. Go ahead. There is that too. I think it was crossover. I think, you, I think you got it right on the nail on the head. I think it was a crossover doctrine. Because there is some um, uh, in that particular denomination that are, are real holiness people. That they are extremely, uh, they're very self-righteous holiness people. Uh, but they are there. Go ahead. Okay. If you're married to a woman that is not a believer, uh, no, I don't see how it would. Of course, I, I, I don't. S- right, right. Do you know th- there is, and I don't bring this out a lot, but you know you got to be careful. You got to look at motives in, in anything. You know, I've, I've seen I've seen men that come in, and, and they talked about you know, how bad their wives were or vice versa. Mostly wives uh, that would talk about how bad her husband is and how, he, you know, he abuses her and all. And, uh, and finally, you know, you, you look at it and watching it, it comes to a divorce. But if you ever talk to the man, you find out that there was two sides to that story. That, you know, she had her eye on somebody else and she made life miserable and he went out and committed adultery on her so she could be free. Or vice versa. So, you know, you... And then there is that scripture. I'm going to say this one time. I'm never going to say it again. This is just a wondering scripture for me, okay? The Bible says you're free if a person is dead. But yet the scripture says that you can be dead in sins and trespasses. You can just chew on that one for a while. Okay, let's move on. As I said, it's one of those questionable scriptures right there. What is dead? Because it really, if, if, if he could, Paul said he could be dead in sins and trespasses, what is he saying there? Now, you know, this is, this is just some of these things that they had to deal with again, refraining. Uh, boy, we'll just take it a little bit further. Uh, there is some that used to, to uh, in fact, when I first got in church, I had, I had kind of come in contact with people because I was a large, very big coffee drinker. You know, and do you realize that if we put restrictions on drinking coffee and soda pop, half of you'd you'd all backslide, every one of you. (laughs) I mean, everyone just do this. But there used to be that. And to some degree, you still see that today in some areas. 
You know, you're not supposed to. Uh, now, that's, a, that's the big thing with me, the fasting. If I try to fast and don't have coffee, I'm going to mess. So are you addicted? Probably. Okay. I can get away from it, but I have to eat like a horse in the first day or two before, I, you know, get out of the coffee, and then, then you can fast. But, yes, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of things. But what we need to do here, and the whole point in everything I'm saying, is that some people focus so much on the things that I have just mentioned that they, they actually get distracted from the essence of what true Christianity is. Now, I know there needs to be holiness standards. I realize that. I'm not saying that. But, you know, sometimes we can focus on every little minute detail to the point that we miss out on what is a Christian life. To the church in Rome, Paul wrote, he said, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. If you're missing the joy and the peace of the Holy Ghost because you're so focused on whether you drink coffee or whether you do this, then there's something wrong with your salvation. You know, we need to have joy in this. And if we don't have joy in this, there's something wrong with us. Now, although this is, this is in the context of discussion about how those are, who are strong in the faith should relate to those who are weak in the faith, and that's what he was speaking of in that scripture, Paul's point is that the, that the issues important to the kingdom of God are not dietary concerns, but matters related to the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. One translation renders the verse, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. This may bring us more directly to the concerns we have and what I want to teach to you uh, here today. At at its core, the apostolic life is a spirit-filled life. And if we don't are not led by the Spirit, then we're going to have problems. There are some people who really, when you know, I just may go back to mentioning it. If, if, if you've got a heart condition and you're eating too much fatty bacon, it might be good for you to abstain from eating bacon. Okay? But that should be for you to do. You don't say, well, I can't eat bacon anymore. I'm going to tell Bob quit eating bacon. You know, or, or you know, I, I, if I told my wife quit drinking Coke, she'd shoot me. Just absolutely. I'd be shot. And if, I, if, she, if she didn't buy me coffee every week, do you know what would happen? Yeah. I mean, that is, that's what the Bible says, doesn't it? Talk about that. If the woman does not buy coffee for her husband, she's dead in the faith or something like that. Dead in sins and trespasses. That's what it was. <laughs> Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. <laughs> All right. Let's look on. Let's move on. Let's look at the universal position of classical Pentecostalism. Let's look at this. There's a cluster of five biblical teachings that were embraced by the Pentecostalism of the early 20th century, which came to be known as what we're going to call classical Pentecostalism. Four of these doctrines are characterized, uh, characterized the holiness and the perfectionism of the late 19th century, and that is justification and sanctification, healing and the second coming of, of Christ. That is what the early Pentecostals focused on. Justification, sanctification, healing, and the second coming of the Lord. Do you realize how much we have let the second coming of the Lord not be our central focus? I mean, you think about this. Now, there is, and to this day, there is still a little bit of a battle in what is justification versus sanctification? Anybody want to tackle that one? You want to tackle that one? Tell. I mean, if someone came up to me and asked me that question, I'm not going to tell them. I'm not going to tell them. 
Okay, that's, that's a perfect explanation. Justified at salvation. We are justified before Christ. Sanctification is the ongoing, the ongoing towards, towards purity is what you're doing. And, you know, that, that was a, some right emphasis. Now, going just a little bit further with this, Pentecostals still emphasize these doctrines. The perfectionism of the 19th century also spoke of baptism with the Holy Ghost, but tended to identify this with sanctification. So that was part of sanctification, not the necessary. And this is how they initially had uh, uh, spoken of this. And it did not connect at all with speaking with tongues. And to these four doctrines, Pentecostalism added a fifth, baptism with the Holy Spirit, with the initial sign, uh, many said, evidence of speaking in tongues. So the central focus of the early Pentecostal message was the second coming of Jesus now, this message was presented in context of a futurist reading of the book of Revelation and a belief that in order to be in the bride of Christ, one must experience baptism with the Holy Spirit with a sign of speaking with tongues. The early Pentecostalism, we knew that. We knew that. We wanted to be a part of the bride. And I'm not even going to get into this particular teaching that some people believe the bride and the body is two different things. Okay, some people, actually Trinitarians, early Trinitarian Pentecostalism, believed that the bride was a very specialized group that came out of Pentecost. The rest was the body. Okay, we're, we're not going to talk about that right now. So let's look at some of the, the, the uh, why they felt this way. Let's look at some of the reading of Revelation. The most common interpretations of the book of Revelation may be grouped into four categories. And the number one was a historical view. And the idea that the Revelation presents the history of the Christian church from beginning to end. Those who hold this view tend to see the history of the church presented in a series of parallel visions that John had. So all Revelation was, was from the beginning to the end. This is what they, they felt, a historical view of the church. Now actually the only historical book in the New Testament, or, or uh, actually yeah, a historical book, was a book of, of Acts. Okay, so it was. So it, it can't be. We believe and we hold to the futuristic uh, view of the book of Revelations, and we take that from Revelations four verse one all the way to the end of the book, and we know that that holds the future. Everything from that point forward is the future. And we know that. But there was other ones. There's the preterist view, which this has been a big thing in Pentecost within the last seven or eight years. A big thing. Preterist view is simply this. Everything in Revelation was fulfilled in A.D. 70. That's, that's their view. We've lost some people as a result of having that view. Everything was already done. A third view is a spiritual or idealist, or idealist view. According to this perspective, Revelation is a picture of the struggles of believers at any point in time. The, all Revelation was to them was our struggles. Okay? And I've already told you our view, which is a, the futuristic view. Now, any idea that compromises the focus on the second coming, because we hold with Revelation pointing to what? The second coming of Jesus Christ. And any time, any time we have a, a focus that, that's outside the second coming of, of Jesus Christ is a turn not only from the focus of the early 20th century Pentecostals, but from the first century church. When we fail to see the sensuality of keeping our focus and looking up for our redemption is nigh and preaching the second coming of Jesus Christ, then we are no longer in tune with the first church. 
we are no longer there. Now, it was widely believed among the pioneer Pentecostals of the first few decades of the 20th century that in order to be in the bride of Christ, you had to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This was common among Trinitarian Pentecostals of that era, era as well as Oneness Pentecostals. Although Oneness Pentecostals also believed that it was essential to be baptized in water in the name of Jesus Christ to be Christ's bride. This point is illustrated by the following paragraph. Now I want to show you something. This, was, this is one of the, is illustrated. This is in order for a Bible college to exist in our ranks, they have to first be okayed by the district that they're in, whatever state that is, their district board. Then uh, it has to go to headquarters, and the uh, Department of Education has to, and they have to believe this way. Let me give you uh, one of the bylaws of one of our colleges, and it just simply says, New Birth, that to be born again and in the bride of Christ, one must be born of water and spirit, which consists of repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, according to John 3, 5 and Acts 2:38. So that was a simple thing. In order for a Bible school to exist, they have to have that kind of bylaw. That should be part. Our bylaws also speak in this church the same way. And it should be. If we, don't, if we hold any other, way or any other way of believing, then there's something wrong with us. I am in the church because I love God and I want to go to heaven. Okay? I want and I believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. If I didn't believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, I wouldn't probably be in the church. But I believe he could come and I could believe he can come. He could come at any second. All right? That's how I believe. That's how I live. And I, if I mess up, I, I'm quick to repent because I'm afraid that he might come a second later. Now you understand that. And we need to keep that. If you want to see it, that's the true fear of God. And there's nothing wrong. The Bible says we need to fear Him. Now, I know that term can be reverence, but there's also one place where it talks about the terror of the Lord. So, yes, I know, what, I know that He can throw me into hell if I mess up. If I'm going to go around and worry about it all the time, no. Are you going to uh, believe that you're just saved, once saved, always saved? No. But I'm going to do my best to believe that I'm not going to be lost either, okay? So, <laughs> it's just something we have to understand. Now, that this statement, again, that I just read, represents a belief widely held among one as Pentecostals, is demonstrated by the fact that it was approved by the district board. So we have to know that's what our Bible schools should be teaching our children that are going to them. Are you hearing me? I, and not a bunch of philosophy and a bunch of garbage. All right. Now, one as Pentecostals equated the bride of Christ with the church, while Trinitarian Pentecostals tended to view the bride as a special group taken out of the church. Again, any idea that is not essential to be baptized with the Holy Spirit as well as to be baptized in water in the name of Jesus Christ in order to be in the bride of Christ is a departure from the beliefs originally held by oneness Pentecostals, Trinitarian Pentecostals who no longer believe it is essential to be baptized with the Holy Spirit in order to be in Christ's bride have also departed from the beliefs of their forebears. Trinitarian Pentecostals used to believe the right way. Now, let's look at some things that turn in the other direction. Let's bring up some good stuff here. In a variety of ways, some 21st century Pentecostals have reshaped their identity to such a way that they no longer stand in complete solidarity with their forebears. Now, there are several influences that have contributed to this transition. Now, before I really start in this, I want to say something. 
I went through, I pastored through the time when uh, the, the charismatic movement was really moving hot and heavy. And I've heard ministers talk and say, well, I, I am so glad that people are receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And I felt so wrong because there was something about this that didn't bear witness with me. I should have been one of them that said, I'm glad these people are receiving the Holy Ghost. But I couldn't do it. I couldn't. There was a part of me that was glad, but what, what happened was I began to look at fruits. And I didn't see any fruits. And so that, that made me think this is going to be something that's going to hurt rather than help. And so far it's proven to be the case. Okay? Now let's just, let's just look at this. In the early 1940s, due to concerns about cultural decline. Now, this is interesting. This is a concern about cultural decline. In the 1940s, it started to decline. Do you realize now, in 2013, how much we have declined? You know, you all laugh at me when I talk about dancing naked around a campfire, that we're just about to that point. Okay? In fact, they are doing that to some degree. We're just about there. Some Trinitarian Pentecostal denominations identified formally with the vision for American religion and culture that was articulated by a group of fundamentalists who called themselves the New Evangelicals. Now, it's the 1940s. And actually, it was turned out to be the Assemblies of God, so it turned out to be. Non-Pentecostals who were prominent in this development defended the inclusion of Trinitarian Pentecostals by claiming that Pentecostal distinctives were non-essential differences of doctrine. In other words, at the beginning of this, what they believed as Pentecostals didn't bother this other group. They weren't powerful enough. That's really what it amounted to. Not all members of these Pentecostal denominations agreed with this development. So a development that demonstrated how uh, far the denomination had moved from the radical uh, restorationism, which it believed. You, you folks, you realize that during the early part of the last century, that how much it, it, was, a, it was almost a Protestant movement. When, when the, the Holy Ghost was poured out and, and when, you know, what we had happening there and so many people receiving the Holy Ghost, there was a restoration of the early church that was going on. And then the worst thing in the world could happen, that was a cultural decline. That's when people begin to say, well, we want to be accepted by everybody. So they begin to let down in areas. That sounds so familiar to what we're seeing today. I want to be accepted by everybody. Listen, I want to be nice to everybody, do all I can, be kind to everybody, but when it comes to our doctrine, I do not want you to accept me and say, oh, your doctrine is not essential. My doctrine is essential, and my doctrine will change a person's life. My doctrine will make a difference to people. It will cause the drug addict to throw away his drugs, the alcoholic to throw away his booze. Are you hearing me? This is what my doctrine can do. I'll give him a good answer. So what happened? 
that these, in other words, again, let me just let me put it this way: the ability to identify so fully with the socio-cultural concerns of non-Pentecostal denominations revealed what it did revealed a waning focus on the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know, if a person is really in their heart believing that Jesus could come at any second, they're going to get into the Bible and they're going to tear it apart to try to figure out how to be right. Now, that's just exactly what, what if, okay, what, what, what would happen right now? What would happen? What would happen if you were told, Jesus let us send an angel down here, stood up here and announced, the Lord is coming in one hour and 15 minutes. You'd be on your face, and you'd be going back to the doctrine and reading it and rereading it, be sure you're doing it. And you see, that's what we've lost. That's what we've lost. Not us, but... That's what so many people have lost. November 1959, Dennis Bennett, an Episcopalian pastor, was baptized with the Holy Spirit with the sign of speaking in tongues. He announced this to his congregation April 3, 1960. This was such an unusual development. Can you imagine this happening today? Now think about what I'm about to tell you. This was so unusual that both Newsweek and Time magazines printed stories about the event. And this is 1960, of course. This is commonly seen as giving birth to the charismatic movement, characterized by members of mainline denominations experiencing baptism with the Holy Spirit. By and large, however, those who were involved in the charismatic movement did not respond to this experience on the same way as did the Pentecostals of a half a century earlier. And although there was general increase in expectancy and longing for the return of Jesus Christ in charismatic communities, the radical belief of early Pentecostals that the outpouring of the Spirit was the sign of nearness of the second coming was not seen. Nor was there any noticeable turn to the idea that baptism with the Holy Spirit was essential for the inclusion in the bride of Christ. Neither was there any significant turn to conformity with the New Testament practice of baptizing believers in the name of Jesus Christ. Although some of the charismatic uh, movement did not oppose this practice, it is, is probably due to the neglect to return to the baptismal practices of the first century Christians that there was also no substantial increase of clarity concerning the significance of Jesus' identity as God manifest in the flesh. This is all that this movement did. 1960, beginning 1980, 83. Charismatics were a big deal. We all know. We know all the fall of the charismatics. We know some of their main ministers falling. But you realize that there was no change. They, filled, they were filled with their... Okay, let me be careful here. I, I do not have the right to say when a person is filled with the Holy Ghost or not filled with the Holy Ghost. I, I don't have that right. God could do it. Now, I'm here to tell you if you spoke in tongues or not, which is a sign and symbol of the infilling of the Holy Ghost. But you need to tell me that you feel satisfied. But it's hard for me to believe that they, these people received the same Holy Ghost that I received. Now, are you saying there's a different Holy Ghost? No. I'm not saying that there is, but there's something wrong. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they know all languages. 
I believe that. Well, there's something else here too. There, there was a. There was churches that would teach you to speak with tongues. They would teach you to do that. Now, 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 in in this, this is why the Bible says, and this is the key. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit has to give the utterance. So what does it tell you? That tells you it can be something else there, doesn't it? That's right. So that's why that that was included in other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. So that means there is a possibility of something else being there. Another tongue, if you would. So, you know, that this is, this is, and this is why that I could never quite get my head around all this. Yes, I'm glad that, to hear someone receive the Holy Ghost at home, but I want to be sure that they did receive the Holy Ghost at home. You know, I want to know that I received the Holy Ghost at home. All right, let's take it. The term third wave to describe a move of the Holy Spirit subsequent to the second wave. Now, this was a, this was a charismatic movement. This was a, a, a term that was coined by a man named Peter Wagner in 1983. Now, the origin of the third wave, which is usually dated around 1981, is connected with a, another movement called John Wimber's Vineyard Christian Fellowship with his emphasis on signs and wonders. And although this movement acknowledges and accepts the practice of speaking with tongues, viewing it as one of the nine spiritual gifts described by Paul, it does not wish to be identified with Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement. Some of its distinctives include the belief that people are baptized with the Holy Spirit when they are converted without the initial physical validation of tongues. Now, there is an attempt to avoid divisiveness at almost any cost, and the terms charismatic and spirit-filled are rejected by this group. There is no identification with the early 20th century Pentecostal emphasis on the nearness of the coming of Jesus Christ or the idea that baptism with the Holy Spirit incorporates a person into the bride of Christ. What we are seeing with a lot of denominations today and and it's nice as far as it goes. It's just being a social group that's nice to one another. They do good works outside the church. We probably don't do enough of that. But, you know, they, they do these things. And, and they're, they're nice and they're associated with Christianity, but there's no power there. There's nothing to them. And, and that's, that's, you know, it's when Jesus was speaking, well, I find faith. When I return, will I find it? What is he talking about? He's talking about faith in him and the power of God to change people's lives. It's a matter of, of uh, a lot of these groups, again, they get together, someone's having a bad time, you talk them through it. You don't pray them through it. You talk them through it. And, and these groups, to that degree, uh, they might do some good works, but works will not and has never saved you. There has to be a change in the heart of an individual. There has to be the indwelling of God's Spirit in that person to make the difference. And when that person has that infilling, there is, there's a part of them that is always looking for the return of their master. And that's what we, that's what we are looking We need to be looking for that return. And then there's the next one. Anybody want to help me with this? And what's postmodernism? 
How about that? You know postmodernism? And do you know anything about it? Well, let me just tell you. I just explained to you postmodernism. You know, postmodernism is that these people will listen to whatever testimony. It's, it's good for the Pentecostal testimony because postmodernists believe in all these things that happen. But they also believe that science can explain everything. That's postmoderns. Science can explain everything. But they'll listen to you and they'll agree with you. That is the worst kind. Oh, I hate teaching a Bible study when I make everybody happy. Because it got to be something these people, oh, I agree, I agree, but there never is any change in that person. You know, there should be something where they question you a little bit. You know, there's got to be something. There's got to be something there that, that allows it. But for them just to agree with everything you said lets me know almost immediately that these people are going to agree with you all the way to the end, but they're not going to change their lives. And that's okay. They still have the truth put into them. And, you know, God can take it from there and can make something happen. And I've seen that happen before. But it's still, on the other hand, you've got to realize that a lot of times when people are smiling and shaking their head, you're looking at postmodern people. Now, just to, to kind of help you with that, because, well, postmodernists, let me, let me, I didn't finish that quite. Postmodernists do not and will not receive anything of doctrine. They will not receive doctrine. But you've got to remember that Paul found a way to give a powerful and convincing witness at Mars Hill to those who spent their time in nothing else but being what postmodernism is. But either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's Acts 17, 21. And here Paul was able to take, he was knowledgeable enough to take their belief in all these different gods and turn it around. So you got this, you got this idol up here to the unknown God. Let me explain to you who that is. So he was able, by his knowledge, to, to speak to people in such a way that made the difference. So, this, you know, Mars Hill was a group of postmodern. They listened to everything. Just don't tell me. Because some of them said they believed him, and some of them mocked him. We can't be afraid of the mocking part. All right, let's move on. Let's look at the next one, materialism. Uh, a guy wrote a book. Uh, it was Robert Mapes Anderson, actually. Robert Mapes Anderson. And uh, his, his, his book was called The Vision of the Disinherited, The Making of American Pentecostalism. And uh, he explores the social status of those who were identified with the holiness movement of the late 19th century, from which most of those came who later embraced Pentecostalism. He concludes that they were predominantly a lower class status. That, this, this way of thinking, has not been over with very long. Because they believed that equating themselves at all with middle class was agreeing with the world. You can't be, now, now I'll, I'll keep it, their thinking here was materialism. So, you know, you have to look at it in that sense. You've got to look at it in the sense of the way it was presented. In this case, they were lower class, and to be anything like a middle class person was being materialistic. Okay? <clears throat> On that accommodation, the church, to, and to, again, to accommodate the church was friendship with the world, thus enmity with God. And although this conclusion may be oversimplified, and I probably did oversimplify it, explanation, it should be no surprise that most of those who hunger for the spiritual realities described in the biblical text are those who have discovered that this present world does not satisfy a person's deepest longing. And that, in that case, we have to understand why they felt the way they did. And in us, we should feel to some degree the same way. We can't, 
uh, move up in class and get all the goodies and everything and think that's going to satisfy something that's deep and needful inside of us. Because any time you have materialism that begins to satisfy the need, then you're going to find out that you continue to spend money, continue to spend money, and the need gets greater and greater, and it's never satisfied. So we have to find that place. We have to find that place where, yes, I can have things, but things can't have me. And if we don't, then we will get in. So, so let's just move this a little further, because what does that, that do to us? You know, it, it makes us unappealing, if you would, to the middle class. And at the risk of reductionism in the form of focusing exclusively on Pentecostalism in North America, let's, let's talk it because every time we talk about Pentecostalism, we talk about it in the sense of us, North America, U.S. It could be said that in general, the social standing of Pentecostals in the 21st century is considerably above that of the rank and file when the movement first burst on the scene just over 100 years ago. And perhaps this is due, at least to some degree, to the fact that many North American Pentecostals have embraced at least some of the biblical wisdom regarding financial management, diligent effort. You know, you can come in and be as poor as Job's turkey. But, you know, you can come in and learn giving to the church, being a good steward of what you had, and you can move up. You know, we're not talking about a prosperity doctrine. We're just talking about people who can move up. And they can learn that giving, because when people begin to learn to give to the church, the church has started looking better. And that does make a difference, folks. You can't you drive by this. we got people drive by this place every day. I have people that I see and say, we saw your sign that said this. Or, you know, you see, they are looking at us all the time. And if this place looks like somebody, you know, dumped a load of sewage on it, then they're going to see that, believe me. That's why we look nice. That's why we keep the yard mode. That's why we do everything we can, because it does make a difference. We're not a bunch of low-class people. And I'm not against low-class people. But I'm saying that when you come to the church, that you can move up. You can be elevated in what you are. God can make you better. So, regardless of our locale, we have to keep in mind that biblical warning against a materialistic lifestyle. There's no biblical support for the prosperity gospel. And so it's not that, but we can do better than what we do. You know, there are, again, the biblical principles a person can practice that will guarantee financial abundance in his life. And I believe that. I believe we can be abundant. And if, the more that you give, the more that you understand it, the better the steward that you are, the more God will give you. And if people will move up in their jobs, they'll make more money. It does happen. And although many verses, again, there's a lot of people that take verses out of context for the prosperity doctrine, uh, a lot of them. But we have, to, we have to understand one thing, and this is one thing that I think all of us, we have to get grips with it regardless of how well off we are or how poor we are. In fact, Hebrews 11 tells us that every time that you're serving God, there's going to be some suffering that's involved. It's just that simple. It tells us this. And it's true that some people of faith were people of material wealth, but this did not spare them from suffering that's associated with living among fallen people in a fallen world. When you live amongst fallen people, there's going to be some suffering that you have to endure. And perhaps one of the most complete biblical treatments found in the New Testament of the dangers of materialism was written by Paul to Timothy. 
Paul warned of the useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, he said, withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we should be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into the temptation and the snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God... Flee these things and pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation uh, of the, for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now that was First Timothy 7, uh, 6 in the New King James Version. Now the sober warning here teaches that the desire to be rich is not to be known among believers. That if one is rich, it is not to be an occasion for pride. That doesn't mean you don't have to desire to be rich, and God can bless you as a result of not wanting to, and you can become rich. In fact, according to most countries out there, every one of you in here is rich. You know, you got in. You got to look at it in terms of world, not just in the USA. So, in terms of world, yes, you know, we are doing very well. All right, comments, complaints, attitude adjustments that need to be met at this point. Anybody? Go ahead. Well, I believe, I believe, now as far as how God's going to judge him, he's going to judge him by what he knows. It's just that simple. But on the other side of it, yeah, I do believe that, you know, I believe these people receive the Holy Ghost. But I believe it's just a, a hanging on to a traditional way of thinking. And he will be judged by that. He will be judged. Now, how God does this and what God does as, as a result of it. I couldn't tell you, but I can't believe. I mean, I've read, uh, Sister Dean gets some things she sends me about David Wilkerson, devotionals. And I've read a lot of his devotionals that she sent me. And, you know, this man's got, he's got some, uh, he knows about holiness. You know, he knows a lot about a lot of things. And why he, I, it's hard for me to believe that this man is not baptized correctly. I'll be honest with you. I wondered about this several times. You know, he may still be associated with the Trinitarian Pentecostal movement of some degree, but does he, does he have all the truth? Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
And when you say we don't, that's just it. He, he might have been associated. And again, for a person, if he was baptized correctly, but for him not to preach it, there's another point of view. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of things. If we go through this congregation right now, there's going to be a lot of people that wonder. You know, they've got good friends that are Baptists, got good friends that, and they're, they're devout. You know, they are devout. And they're good people, and we can stand up here all day and try to speculate. That's why there is a white throne judgment, and, and you know that that's why I don't believe these people can ever be in the bride. But I, I I wonder about other things, and there's going to be differences in new earth, new heaven, new earth. You know, it's going to be a lot of these things. So we can't, as far as us being able to say what's going to happen, it's hard to say. It really is. And I would be really dumb in trying to speculate up here on that. Anybody else? Go ahead. Yeah. Now, I agree with that. Yeah, that's good. You know, and the key here, more than anything, is getting baptized right. I, I've, and I've told people that. You know, I said, I don't, you, you go ahead, just get you baptized right, and we'll work on the other. You know, yeah, because that's the key. That's the key. Don't push them away with saying, well, you know, because, of course, you know, the, uh, uh, there's a guy that's being taught a Bible study right now that, uh, you know, he's he's gone back to that cult book, you know, that we're a cult because we don't believe in three gods. That's that's what they're called. And, uh, and of course, they don't say it that way, but that's exactly what they're saying. And, you, you know, this guy, I think Brother Hill is teaching him a Bible study, and he's hearing from somebody else, say, you've got to be careful, those oneness people, they believe in Jesus only. You know, and we do, but it's not a good way of saying it. It's better to say Jesus is everything, you know, because it's biblical. In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. That's what I believe. And I know, you know, He's a Father in creation, Son of salvation, Holy Ghost and regeneration. You know, we can, we can say that. He's one God. And, and, you know, oneness to all of us is the simplest thing in the world. And it's so, uh, the devil has given blinders to so many Trinitarians. Go ahead. That's good. But it's knowable. Do you, do you realize that scripture explains itself? It says that, and if you go down underneath it, it explains it. So it does. It, does. it just explains the whole thing.
right. It's yeah, and that is sad, and that's people are going to be judged with that though. Well, that's yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and you got to remember. Yeah. That's right. 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 I don't exactly what you're saying because I did the same thing. I, you know, I was raised around it. But, you know, that, that I, I couldn't believe that all these other people might be wrong. So I had to look for myself. And the Scripture was a final authority. Go ahead. I'm going to have to get down here because you've got this little, little tiny voice. <laughs> That's what the white throne judgment's all about, and, you know. And that when I say that, you know, that, that there's a certain thing, you know, the, the, the doctrine we have according to the scripture puts us in the bride of Christ, but there is a white throne judgment because there are going to be people, millions of people that are born during the millennial, during the tribulation, uh, people that that didn't. I mean, we can take, we can go back all the way, like to American Indian. Uh, you could go back. I mean, to to anything. The villages and tribes of all over the world that they didn't have. They died, and they never heard this. Well, that's what dispensationalism is about, dispensation of conscience. So that means that, that in other words, God's going to judge. Let's say that I'm, I'm a wild heathen, okay, and, and, I, and being a wild heathen, uh, the only people I think that are true people are the people in my tribe, okay? The rest of them are not people. They're just animals. That's how, and there are the Indians that thought that way. So I could kill all those people I wanted to, but if I killed someone in my tribe, I was a murderer. God would judge me because of what I knew and how I was taught. You see what I'm saying? So that's what the conscience is. There's dispensation of innocence, dispensation of conscience, uh, dispensation of the law. And we're in the dispensation of grace right now. You know, the unmerited favor of God. And that's why we have this opportunity, and that's why it's so vital for us to teach as many people as we can and, and to teach. Uh, you know, and there's one side, I heard a preacher say a long time ago, he was, ra- he was raised in Pentecostal church, okay, and he, he said he got away, kind of semi got away from it. And he said, I used to just hate the fact that the Bible said you're going to be judged by what you know because <laughs> he could not get away from it. <laughs> no matter what, he said, I could not get away from it. And so, of course, he, he got back. But, but I'm saying that that's just the whole point by what we know. And the thing is that judgment is also going to occur by the fact that you got a Bible. Your Bible tells. Go ahead. Okay. And if this scares me, I'm not referring to local at all. I'm just referring 
always try to make it a goal to take on hard people. I yeah. People that ask really hard questions. I love those people because they, they, they challenge me, but I get determined to win. Yeah. And I dig and dig and dig and dig and dig to try to, to reach them and try to get on their level. But what I'm saying is this. I, I think a lot of times in the general church world, when it's you're trying to ask solid pastors, trying to find out, et cetera, I think a lot of people don't study the Bible. I think they come to church and they're satisfied with what the pastor teaches, but they don't ever study at all. And then you have people that ask the hard questions. I'm dealing with an individual right now, and he's bordering oneness, but just not quite there. He's looking into Judaism. And oh, you're still dealing with him? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, but I'm encouraging him not to just accept what I tell him. I'm telling him you've got to dig, you've got to do this. But what if, what if I was one of those individuals that was dissatisfied with just coming to church, and, and even know that every minister on that platform does an exceptional job in preaching? That's not enough. You have yeah. to dig. You have to find the hard questions yeah. and the hard answers. And I've been able. Yeah. Rick Robertson, Brother Rick Robertson, yeah, yeah. between me and him, we are still really influencing him. He has a lot of respect for your son, a ton of respect, because your son lived it in the military. And that's the reason why he's looking at our church right now, is because your son lived it. Then that's I, a big... I honor your son for that. I, I, the military's done it. But anyway, he's been asking me, anytime he calls me, it's always about something in the Bible. He's asking me a hard question. Mm-hmm. And I always try to give him my very best Oh, that's true. You know, and then, I, you know, and I, I read books like Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a stout atheist. But yeah. because there were people that dug into the scriptures and then dug into science and all these and combined them together and still maintained their faith, they were able to transfer a lot of this stuff where Lee Strobel was able to understand you can be an intellectual, but yet you can still have faith. You can still believe in God. And he says, I had a lot of my hard questions answered. Well, now he's encountering people who have the same skepticism that he had. He's winning them to the Lord because someone dug. My theory is what would happen if every person in every church could have a master's degree in the Bible. Oh, isn't that true? And, 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 and be an apostle Paul in the Bible. And I, you know, and I think that's possible. I know there's time restrictions. I struggle with time mm-hmm. restrictions. But if everybody studied the Word of God to where they could answer the hard questions, I think there wouldn't be an atheist. I don't think there'd be an agnostic. Well, that's what I said in the book of Acts. They are more noble than them in Thessalonica, or Macedonia, I'm sorry. They're more noble than Macedonia, for they studied to see whether these things be true or not. Because they studied what, what the apostles was preaching. They studied. And uh, to be sure it was right. Stand with me. Good input. Thank you. Thank you. I, I enjoy things like this a great deal. Because it, uh, it, it, it gets me, and I, I like sometimes being pushed in a corner, you know, and, and questions. It's nice. Uh, that's how iron sharpeneth iron, and it really makes a difference. All right, let's raise our hands on this. Ask God to touch. Lord, we thank you for your blessings, your goodness, your mercy, and I pray your touch keep each and every one as they travel here, Lord, this morning. Bless and be with them and bring them back safely tonight, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, again, we're going to believe we're going to have service. Uh, we have a horse.